the Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Paul, we're back. We've done it. <laughs> I think we I think we cracked the case. Even we, yeah. We fixed COVID. This is <laughs> We better rush this episode out before it becomes completely outdated as our <laughs> as our guest. Yeah, so I'm gonna caveat this up front. This is a COVID episode. We recorded it on this is this is the nineteenth of March. 2020, and uh, we are going to rush it out as fast as we can so that the information is not horribly outdated. But I think there's a lot of really great wisdom in here from our guest. Um, Paul, before we we get into talking about that, can you remind people what it is we do on this show? And nothing would delight me more. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. And not so much screwing around up front because we had a lot to talk about. The pressure's on. Yeah, and, and joining us again tonight is Rahul Ganatra, Dr. Rahul Ganatra, who works with us on various shows, uh, particularly the Hot Cakes episodes. Rahul, uh, can you give the audience a one-liner about yourself just to remind them who you are? Sure, Matt. I'm an internal medicine physician at the West Roxbury VA in Boston, Massachusetts, and I am a journal club enthusiast is probably the best way to put it. Yeah, we, we really needed somebody like you for the show, so thank you for joining us. Paul Williams, tell them about our wonderful guests so we can get right to the episode. Sure. As I'm sure you know from reading the episode title, we have a great guest for you. We have the one and only Dr. Paul Sachs. So Dr. Sachs is the clinical director of the Division of Infectious Diseases and the HIV program at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. He is the editor-in-chief of the Open Forum Infectious Diseases, is the section editor of HIV, AIDS, and Up to Date, and on the editorial board of the New England Journal of Medicine, Journal Watch, Infectious Diseases, where he writes his HIV and ID observations blog. He is also on the editorial advisory board of Medscape HIV, AIDS, and we are excited for a conversation with him about COVID-19, even though a lot of it is us just saying we don't know yet, um, but that makes all of us feel better, weirdly. So... Yeah, Paul. And as we, I don't know how much we said about this on the show, but we definitely said it off air. I mean, I, f- I feel like this is a time as a community where it just feels, it even feels good to just get together and talk about what we don't know. So I'm hoping people will like this episode. What do you think, Sarah? I mean, Matt, would you say that we're hoping it goes viral? Ayo. <laughs> but, um, So, uh, Dr. Sachs, we're going to ask if we can call you Paul from here on. And uh, I guess Paul Williams will call you uh, P-Dubs tonight sure. since, since there's two Pauls. So, Paul, can you remind the audience who you are in a, in a one-liner and, and then we'll get right to the topic. Sure, sure. Um, I'm an infectious disease clinician and I am a clinical teacher and researcher and writer. I have a lot of other enthusiasms, including my family and playing tennis and pizza and Baseball analytics. All of many of some of those things are on hold for now. Oh, so, so sorry. I was reading your <laughs> blog post, uh, the recent uh, really rapid review one, where you were kind of lamenting about the baseball thing. Yeah. So yeah. S- sorry about that. Yeah. Well, you know what? In in the grand scheme of things, it's 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 just a game. Uh, so let's <laughs> let's get started. Let's get started here. Let's jump right into it because we have limited time. We're in a pandemic right now. Why is this SARS-CoV-2 different? 
than than these other things like MERS and the original SARS that we that we had heard about in the past like twenty years. Well, I, it's a coronavirus like the other two, but the, but the important difference is that that um, the effect it has on people, SARS caused a very severe respiratory infection, so it was easy to identify and was not that transmissible. Um, MERS, similarly, um, by contrast, this has a lot of very mild cases. People may not know they even have it, uh, and also is uh, therefore much more transmissible in the community, and you can't identify the cases as easily. So it has ended up um, meeting an entirely susceptible population because it hasn't been identified in humans before and caused you know thousands and thousands of cases worldwide. So, so, so really it has to do with kind of both the clinical phenotype of the disease as well as the, um, the fact that it's spread in the, in the respiratory tract. I I have to say, uh, Paul. I don't know about you, but uh, Paul Williams. Uh, I <laughs> I almost was like this is like a cry wolf situation where I, I I was hearing about this early on, and I was like, oh wait, it's how serious is it? Oh, it's kind of like the flu. Ah, uh, they said Mars was or MERS was going to come over here in the original SARS. I'm not going to worry about this thing. And then like some things flipped in the past like couple of weeks, and I just started freaking out. <laughs> uh, exactly, it's the same thing. I look back at conversations I've had where I win. So I'm like, no, just just get your flu shot. Don't even worry about that. And so I feel like that comparison actually gets trotted out a lot. And you hear one of the arguments against social isolation and, and social distancing that I hear is that well, we don't do that for the flu, and and everyone came through it okay. So so. Paul, if, if I could ask you to sort of compare and contrast the two, and how how is this different than the flu, and why are we behaving differently? So, so one reason it's different is something I already mentioned, which is the uh, lack of immunologic response. I mean, we even though that we need a new flu vaccine every year, even though the flu vaccine isn't very effective, we do have some immunity because the flu comes and goes each year, and so some immunity is there. And and it's actually the years where we don't have much immunity that we have a lot of really serious flu. So that's one reason. Second. Uh, it looks like, uh, based on the the data we have so far, that that the case uh, case morbidity, case fatality rate um, is is somewhat higher, uh, and so even though the number of flu cases is staggeringly high and it causes enormous morbidity and mortality. Um, as I, I've said many times to people, it's not a competition. It's not like one beats the <laughs> other. Uh, these these two viruses both can be quite serious, and we now know that this one um, is going to uh, infect a whole lot of people very very quickly. Rahul, I think this would be a good time. You you were mentioning we're talking about like there's attack rates and uh, mortality rates with the viruses. What what caution do you have for people when they're looking at these early early trials or early studies that are coming out? Yeah. I mean, the pace of new information during a pandemic is just dizzying. I mean, I have found it difficult to read the literature, much less critically appraise it. Um, and Paul, meaning Dr. Sachs, I would love yeah. to get your thoughts on this. Sure. Um, you know, I talk with residents about um, how to critically appraise case series. And residents are sometimes um, uh, falsely reassured that because there are no comparisons being made, there's not really source of bias that we need to be attentive to. Um, and as a uh, case for our discussion, I would just like to highlight three of the initial uh, studies from Wuhan, two are case series uh, from February in JAMA and the New England Journal, and then the third is a retrospective cohort study in The Lancet. What are the types of things, Dr. Sachs, that uh, learners should be attentive to in appraising studies like this? Well, case fatality rate is always going to be higher when you look at hospitalized patients, um, and initial reports inevitably have higher case fatality rates because only the people with the most severe disease get tested. So really, this is a denominator problem. 
we don't know the full spectrum of infection yet, and often you don't know until after an epidemic is over. But I think we can get some clues from South Korea, which uh, has been the real hero in disease control. South Korea noticed they had this epidemic. They started testing like crazy, I mean, really aggressively. And, And so what they found was a couple of very interesting things. First, they found the attack rate was actually very high in young people. This is not something that was initially thought of because a lot of the cases were mild. So so incredibly high rate in young people. All those people down, you know, in spring break, uh, I mean, <laughs> okay. unfortunately. I mean, they get they are people who get in, get in, get viral infections a lot. So one, very high rates in young people. And two, a much lower case fatality rate. And so in, in Korea, it's about 0.6 to 1% at the most. Um, so that's that's lower, certainly, than the initial estimates. And it gives us at least a rough estimate of where this is. But even if it is 0.6%, uh, remember that, that annual influenza is, is at about 0.1%. So this means this is five to 10 times more lethal than influenza, which is pretty bad, uh, especially if you postulate that the number of people are going to get infected, as has been uh, estimated by disease modelers. I think that's really useful to put uh, this virus in perspective. Um, I'm also curious about what are the kinds of questions about a new virus that sort of can and can't be answered by a case series from an outbreak investigation? You know, I, I sort of trust the report of clinical characteristics more than I trust speculation about transmission dynamics. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about the veracity of information early on. Right. Uh, you know, that we don't know where most of the transmissions take place. I, I will say that that China has done us a big favor by telling us that that there's enormous amount of household transmission, that that familial clusters are very common. And, and that actually informs some of our advice about home quarantine. Um, but but you're right. I mean, especially because because a lot of the initial cases are going to be people who have contacts. And it really goes, you know, one thing that we can we can several times during this discussion rue is that we had such limited testing initially, but all of us in ID knew that these criteria for testing were really uh, way too restrictive. Uh, they were necessary in certain certain ways because we didn't have enough tests, but they no way captured the full community spread of the virus and still, as of today, uh, do not. And it's only ramping up finally, uh, to be able to test people quickly and more broadly. But that, that is something that has not been the case for the initial phase in this epidemic in the United States. And Dr. Sachs, I'm also thinking about, you know, what should be the takeaways for learners, meaning medical students, residents, attendings, fellows, you know, everybody who's encountering this virus for the first time. When we read these case series, you know, I think about findings that are kind of more robust and less robust. If everybody is getting a CBC on admission, you know, I'm more willing to trust the observation that many of these patients will have lymphopenia. But if only the sickest patients are getting CT scans of the chest, you know, I I worry that that might not be an accurate representation of which patients really have ground glass opacities. Could you speak a little to that? Well, you know, it it also reflects the differences in our healthcare system. First, I agree with you completely that, that you know, only people getting ho- getting hospitalized are going to necessarily uh, get a CT scan. But that's not true in China. In China, they have portable CT scans and they can do CT scans way more quickly than we can in the United States. Um, but I, I do agree that the, the prevalence of abnormalities is going to be much, much higher in the initial case series. So 
we should get used to the fact that there are going to be atypical cases. Um, we should get used to the fact that people are not going to have an exposure history. Um, and we should get used to the fact that there is a very, very wide spectrum of illness in this infection, something that is uh, already evident to us uh, in, in ID. Let me remind you that our sponsor today is Primary Care Internal Medicine of Ithaca. They have a wonderful opportunity to join them as a primary care physician in beautiful upstate New York, near the Finger Lakes, near wine country. This is a great practice. They have flexible hours. They are open to job sharing. You can take as much time as you need with your patients. You will become part of a close-knit community of medical professionals All while living in a college town in upstate New York, it's a great place to raise a family and to practice medicine. If this sounds exciting to you, and it should sound exciting, then please email arcostello, C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O, at gmail.com to learn more about this opportunity. Well, with that, I think we should move into some of our cases from Cashlack. And uh, Dr. Williams, Paul Williams, I think we should get you to read the first case. (laughs) Sure. Happy to, especially since it includes me. So that'll be fun to read out loud. <laughs> so we're, we're going to start uh, with a case from the Cashlack Regional Ambulatory Practice. Um, and we have moved to telehealth for the foreseeable future. So we're telling patients, unless you really need to come in, we prefer to deal with things um, via telephone. I'm on call for the practice. I receive a call from patient. I'm a hoarder. She is a 59-year-old female with type 2 diabetes on metformin monotherapy with a reasonably well-controlled A1C of 6.9%. She has high blood pressure, and she's on the Cinepril. Um, So she has hoovered up all the toilet paper in her local area. She's ready to go home. And then she notices that she's had a new cough and a runny nose for the past three days. So upon further discussion, she doesn't have contact with any confirmed cases of COVID-19, though there are at least a few in her area now. And she's visited several stores (laughs) to buy all the toilet paper. (laughs) So she's she's out and about, and she's, of course, wearing an N95 respirator for all of her shopping. So she's been keeping safe, but is, of course, still reasonably concerned. So I guess... We'll start with that, with her choice of um, protection. You know, I, I think the, the tone on social media, at least sort of in the, the med Twitter, has been sort of dismissive or sort of angry about patients sort of wearing masks out in public. But I feel like we've been sending a lot of mixed messages. And given, you know, the possibility that people without symptoms are sort of out there cheerfully transmitting virus, I just wonder, what are your thoughts on on patients who are reasonably asymptomatic or with mild symptoms just kind of out there in the community wearing masks? Well, the problem is that that our messaging was mixed. And um, this was very nicely articulated in an op-ed from the Times recently, where basically they said, we were telling people masks don't work in the community. Uh, oh, but we need critically need them for the hospital to, pr- to protect workers. And also, if you're sick, you should wear a mask. So we we're saying they don't work, but we we're saying that they were critically important. And that, you know, those, those don't make a lot of sense and would make people say, these, these authorities are lying to me. You know, uh, if we had could you know press the rewind button, we would do the following. We would have noticed that uh, China was actually getting control of the epidemic. They were doing a lot of different things, and one of which was that they had a lot of people wearing masks in public. And we would have ramped up our mask production. I'm not saying that they necessarily are important in prevention of community spread, uh, but we don't know that they're not. Uh, and and the data really the data are very weak. So so I think that we tried to use the absence of data as a rationale for discouraging people from using masks because we needed it from the hospital. So so I think, you know, that that's my take on it as of today. Uh, I will say that a mask is much more effective 
in preventing people from coughing out and infecting others. So we have for many years now, as soon as someone arrives in our outpatient clinics, if they have a respiratory infection, given them a mask to wear in the outpatient clinic. Uh, and, and that's because of that fact that they're much less likely to disperse droplets with infection in them if they're wearing a mask. So for this this patient, she she has pretty mild symptoms. And let's say she 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 probably has a cold. In, in most cases in the past, what guidance would you give a patient with just a common cold or, or just any run-of-the-mill virus that existed before we were in a pandemic? And how does that guidance now differ in the pandemic for, as far as kind of self-quarantine, social distancing? Yeah. I mean, the advice you give to a patient who has a cold is to stay home until you're feeling better and then you can come back to work. <laughs> you know, that's very straightforward information that, that you hardly need to do an ID fellowship to give that information to somebody. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and if you're a very bad doctor, you prescribe a course of azithromycin. Um, so, <laughs> but but what's different now is that um, c- coronavirus, uh, this the one that causes COVID-19 can also cause very mild disease. And, you know, uh, the, some of the, I think there was a case series from Germany that showed that, you know, this group of people who got infected, young, mostly young, they basically all had cold symptoms. So while initially the, the case series from China was like, oh, this is a lower respiratory tract infection, it doesn't really cause predominant rhinorrhea, you know, all of that stuff, you know, it, it's really, it's, it's relative. And, and so you're not going to be able to tell. So these days, what I would say to someone with a cold is that they should err on the side of caution, that they should stay home until they're completely recovered. Uh, they're not going to, right now, they're not going to get tested. Uh, that could change. But, but they should err on the side of the uh, – and they should, they should wash their hands frequently. Uh, they should not socialize with others. Uh, they should, should avoid contact with, with people as much as possible. How would that change if, she, if we had a higher threshold of suspicion? Well, let's say that she was presenting with very mild symptoms but say had a, a more uh, – like a positive contact that was a little bit worrisome. Um, that seems sort of verifiable. Like how – if someone with relatively mild symptoms but who probably had exposure, how does that – how does your counseling so, about quarantine change? So, so – um, People who've had a contact, uh, we have to put in a different category. Your prior probability is higher. Um, if her symptoms would, were totally the same as this, but they had a prior contact, I would I would sort of amplify the the importance of of staying home that until all of the symptoms are improved. And, and you know, current you know CDC guidance based not on a lot of data is to wait at least a week um, until after the symptoms first appear. They have to be better. Uh, they're not coughing anymore, and at least a week have passed since the symptoms first appeared. That, that's kind of what they're saying right now. Um, you know, I, I say these, I have to just underscore the uncertainty with all these recommendations. A lot of them are based on common sense and the fact that, yes, the, the virus is is in the respiratory secretions in much higher concentrations when people are sick. So we want to keep those people out of public as much as possible. And I think part of where this, this question comes up uh, on the inpatient side is, if you had a patient that, you know, say they get admitted with metanumovirus and they're there for a week and now they're just waiting for a placement in a, a nursing facility and it's like, can you, the hospital doesn't really have protocols to take those patients off of droplet precautions. They'll keep them on precautions. But then when you read about the certain viruses, they say, yeah, once the symptoms are gone, you know, they should, they should, they shed virus for this long. And so you can take them off precautions after this long. And I guess we're everyone's hoping to find out like what that is for COVID, uh, so this SARS-CoV-2, but we don't really know yet. So you're saying the CDC just says a week after you're completely better at this point, that's the current guidance. 
you know, it's it's. It, I have to tell you that that there are studies that have looked at PCR positivity in people who've recovered, and not surprisingly, the more you look, the more you find. Yeah. Uh, and there are some people who shed the virus for quite a long time, even after they've recovered. And you know, one of them is a is a owns a, a I think a radio show somewhere in the United States, and he's been very public about his experience. He had a relatively mild case. He was diagnosed. He was isolated, and he's part of a research study now where they're basically you know, checking his PCR on a regular basis. And he's just stayed positive for a long, long time. And so he's still in isolation. He's got a very good sense of humor about it. But it does show you that that once you start looking, you often find virus. Now, people will then argue, well, is that transmissible virus? Or is that just kind of viral remnants? And that's really not what sustains the epidemic. And I'm going to say this again. I don't know. No one knows. Yeah, I think I'm going to say that a lot during this podcast. Okay, well, let's let's give you some more questions that are tough and probably unanswerable. But I, I, this is I'm telling you, this is group therapy. Uh, Paul Sachs this is group therapy for me and Paul Williams, Rahul, Sarah, our producer. Yeah, we 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 need we need this. So it's so well, let's let's go back to um, and I've immediately forgotten her name as is often my way. It's, um, but I'm a yes, hoarder. Not, oh, I'm a hoarder. How could I forget? Um, so for our particular patients, I guess more broadly talking about testing. So for our patients specifically, is this someone who warrants testing in the current state of affairs or would she warrant testing later on? So I guess one of the things that I struggle with right now is in a resource limited setting, who, who merits testing and then what are we trying to accomplish that? Is it risk stratification or epidemiology or, or what are we doing with the testing when we decide to test? Yeah. I mean, I can tell you that, that all of us in ID wish testing were more broadly available so that we could test pretty much everyone. This is a new infection. This is a new virus to humans. Uh, we need to learn as much about it as possible. And kind of the only way we can can figure that out is, is to test, test, test. Uh, and, and not having that ability has been one of the great frustrations in the early phase of this epidemic in the United States. It's been well publicized. Why? So we don't need to go into that. Uh, but I will say that the situation is slowly improving, especially on the inpatient side. Uh, but but here in the outpatient sex side, in most uh, communities, it's still not easy to get a test. I will say that someone like this with a mild cold symptoms certainly would not get a test in the state of Massachusetts right now. Um, you know, obviously, we all know celebrities have gotten tested with much less than this. Uh, basketball but, but, teams. Yeah, exactly. But I can say that, that it is very, very unlikely that, that this person today would get a test. But if we did have a test and her tests were positive, um, then, then uh, you know, you would you would learn something about the the disease, and we'd learn something about the disease spectrum, uh, and uh, also potentially we'd know about people who have immunity. So there's all kinds of reasons why we wish we could test more. So, so right now, though, an outpatient with these symptoms, without fever, uh, would would without a known contact, would not in the uh, United States get a, get a test. So let's go on to our case, uh, the, our next case. This is Ima's big brother, Major Kariza. He's an officer in the Air Force. He has hypertension. He takes lisinopril. He regularly takes ibuprofen for knee pain. He had a fever of 101 with a cough and some muscle aches, some fatigue, uh, didn't have any shortness of breath, and was able to perform yard work this weekend as usual. But he, he heard Cashlack had some uh, drive-through tests, uh, testing available, so he went um, he went there, got a test, went home onto self-quarantine, and then the next day he gets the results that he he tested positive. So he has COVID-19. How He's now calling you uh, 
Dr. Sachs, uh, let's say you're his primary care doctor for some reason, uh, what would it sound like? Like, what would you tell him about how to handle himself at home? And uh, we kind of already talked about how long he should be on quarantine. I guess the answer is we don't know, but for (laughs) at least a week after he's well. So what would you tell him about a household context and managing that? Right. So so, so there's... um there's really pretty strong advice and advice that we're not used to. I mean, it's we are human beings naturally want to care for our loved ones. And so if someone's sick, we want to care for them. We want to bring them food. We want to visit them often. Uh, you know, we want to be in the room with them as they're sick. We have to go against that instinct in this case and do just the opposite. Uh, so so if you have uh, family members, family members have another place to say, stay, it wouldn't be crazy to say, go stay there. Um, if there's a separate room that a person could be in, definitely use it. Uh, all of the activities of that person should be in that room. And that room, uh, periodically, we hope with, with, uh, with his help, could be cleaned because of surfaces can get contaminated. Um, no sharing of food. That's very, very important. And uh, there is another thing that, that you, you kind of want to say is that, um, you know, as he's starting to improve, uh, then... Uh, he should um, he should not he should wait at least at least a week before he's better before coming out of this uh, quarantine. There are criteria now uh, about this. You know they say no fever for at least seventy two hours. Um, other symptoms are better, and you know at least a week after the symptoms started. So that's that's when you can sort of start to think about coming out of quarantine. Rahul, I think now's a good time. You had a question about the the testing, right? Yeah, Dr. Sachs, I'm not sure if we can really use the term sensitivity and specificity at this point, because I'm not sure if we know what the gold standard is for diagnosing COVID-19. But I am wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the current state of our understanding about what is the false negative rate and the false positive rate for these tests. So, um, again, as you mentioned, limited information, the estimates um, from China was that the test was in the high 70s to uh, low 90s in sensitivity. It depended on when the test was taken. Uh, it is a test that depends a lot on the uh, adequacy of the specimen. And one thing to keep in mind is that right now in the United States, nasopharyngeal swabs are preferred for specimen collection. And as you know, to obtain a nasopharyngeal swab, you actually have to insert the swab into the into the nose and head posteriorly and some people make the same joke every time so i'll make it you know practically need to do a biopsy of the pituitary gland Uh, but really you you push it back until you get some resistance you then twirl it around and then you put it in the viral culture media that's the best way to get a nasopharyngeal sample and and not everyone knows how to do that and actually one of my colleagues uh, dr francisco marty he actually has on the New England Journal of Medicine a, a, a you know that those that's video series of, of techniques of, of medical procedures. He actually has one on obtaining a nasopharyngeal swab, which I think is really good. Uh, so a good specimen um, in, handled rapidly um, would probably would would definitely have a higher sensitivity than than poor. How about false positives? You know, there are other circulating coronaviruses that cause mild colds, but the PCR primers are sufficiently different that we do not think that false positives are going to be a big deal. We actually uh, will really will we'll believe a, a positive test. Um, this is also a good time to bring up the fact that we many of us use multiplex respiratory panels to diagnose other viral infections. And co-infection does occur with this infection. I think one of the one of the very misleading aspects of our first 
phase of this in the United States is we were often advised if you had an alternate diagnosis, then you didn't need to test for for uh, for COVID-19. And in fact, that is uh, not true. Um, and in one series that was just recently publicized out of Stanford, they actually had 20% co-infection. That's a high rate of co-infection, but it's certainly not not wildly high. And, and especially during flu season, this is the end of the flu season, you can definitely have more than one infection. One of my colleagues shared with me that a, a case they have in a different institution has both and is, is quite critically ill. And they're not sure whether it's the COVID-19 or the flu or the both. Uh, and then, then the, the other point to mention is the turnaround time. You know, these PCRs tests um, can be done quite quickly, but often they need to be batched. Uh, and since they need to be batched, often they'll need a certain number of tests before they're run. So it's not as if uh, most people don't have access to a point of care test that has a result back in, say, an hour. Uh, most people will have to wait, even if for an in-house test, a test done in your institution, uh, for uh, you know six to twelve, even twelve to twenty-four hours. And then, of course, sendouts have the travel time associated with them as well. So, so they are fast. They're faster than cultures, but they um, are not uh, immediate. The follow-up question back to Major Kariza here, what, what, what would you tell him about when to come to the hospital? Well, you know, importantly, there seems to be this uh, second phase of the illness that some people develop, um, you know, where they initially have the cough and the fever, and then they feel like they're getting better, and then something happens. Uh, the current theory is that it triggers a secondary immune response in the lungs, and then they get worse again. Uh, and while it has been it was initially thought that this might be secondary bacterial infection, in fact, it wasn't. It was actually progressive uh, COVID-19 disease that is associated with extremely high inflammatory cytokines and a lot of uh, symptomatic short of breath, shortness of breath. And, and I would definitely encourage anyone with COVID-19 diagnosed that if they start to get more short of breath, that they should clearly come into the hospital because some some of those individuals will, of course, need uh, intensive care and respiratory support. Great. Dare we touch, Paul Williams, <laughs> dare we touch the NSAID and ACE inhibitor? <laughs> I mean, you just sprinkled landmines throughout this case. I love it. Yeah. So let's, I think we should at least talk about the NSAIDs because I think there was even some statement put out. There's so many organizations putting out statements now. I can't really keep track. But where are we with with NSAIDs and, and known COVID infection? Well, the, the uh, issue with NSAIDs and actually with the ACE, you know, ACE and ARBs is that they, they, they upregulate the ACE2 receptor in the lung, and the ACE2 receptor is where the, where the uh, um, coronavirus binds. And so, you know, theoretically, those drugs could make uh, the, 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 the disease worse, although some have said, well, maybe the ARBs will make them better, but, but nobody really knows. And I believe the American Card College of Cardiology just came out with a policy statement saying that if people are on them, they should continue them. Uh, if people are, you know, people shouldn't discontinue them solely for this reason. And, and that sort of depends on, on, uh, on really what happens in observational studies going forward. I think the data on, on uh, NSAIDs um, is mostly anecdotal. And I, I, I certainly wouldn't recommend NSAIDs, um, but I don't think that they've known to be harmful yet. All right. So, Paul, let's let's say that Major Cariza does spectacularly well, recovers um, without incident. So is it possible for him to become reinfected uh, with, with, with COVID again? This is really um, one of the key questions in uh, COVID-19 disease. Is there immunity after infection? Uh, I'm, I'm an optimist by nature, um, even in this current climate. 
and we'll say that I, I suspect there is, and there are some animal studies uh, suggesting that you know immunity can can be protective for this infection, and uh, that's also the basis of a lot of the vaccine work. So I'm I'm cautiously optimistic that yes, there will be immunity. Of course, I don't yet know, uh, and and we'll ha- we'll have to see. So 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 that that's that's the that's as much as we know right now. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's say we let's say we make Major Cariza really sick, and he actually comes into the hospital. Uh, he he didn't get reinfected. He just uh, he just didn't he didn't recover. He got sicker. He's getting this. Um, he has this cytokine response going on. What experimental therapies are out there right now that are showing promise early on? So there is a uh, repurposed drug, which is chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, which got a lot of attention because it was recently mentioned by the president. Uh, this is a drug obviously not used for infectious diseases very often any longer. It's an anti-malarial. Uh, it's used more for rheumatologic diseases. And there is some in vitro evidence that it has antiviral activity. And there are also some uh, uncontrolled data showing it lowers viral uh, viral titers faster. Um, I want to say this is experimental. Uh, I'm I'm concerned about the wide publicity of this because already apparently pharmacies are having short stocks of hydroxychloroquine because people are are starting to hoard it. Um, but I do would definitely support in a situation where someone maybe, for example, has mild respiratory symptoms plus one of the bad risk factors for severe disease. We didn't talk about that yet, but people who are older, uh, people who have immunocompromising conditions, people who have active malignancies, structural lung disease, hypertension, coronary disease, diabetes, they, they're the people who get the sickest with this. I would say that if they fall into that ca- one of those categories, plus they have bad enough disease to require hospitalization, you know, we should consider the use of hydroxychloroquine. Let me mention one other drug that is moving along in clinical studies right now. It's an antiviral called remdesivir. And remdesivir, there are several clinical trials ongoing uh, for treatment of uh, COVID-19. This was a drug that unfortunately did not work against Ebola, uh, but there are now some at least observations that in um, compassionate use settings that it's that it, that it's helpful. Uh, I do want to say that, that it's best for people to be in clinical studies so that we can see whether it actually works. And then the last thing to mention is sort of this, uh, uh, something that is given to people who are very severe inflammatory response uh, the drug that is tocilizumab. Tocilizumab is a powerful IL-6 antagonist and markedly reduces inflammation. It's generally not used in infectious disease at all. In fact, it's an immuno, it's immunomodulator, uh, but there have been some striking anecdotal successes with the use of tocilizumab in severely ill people. All right. So probably we would need uh, someone else's, we, we need a higher pay grade than us to start uh, tocilizumab and probably remdesivir. Yes. Hydroxychloroquine, yes. though, if if we were, if you're working as a hospitalist or you're a primary care doctor and someone's on the fence as to whether or not they need to be admitted, but they have those risk factors, would it be reasonable? And, and do you think it's useful to talk about the dose of hydroxychloroquine? Um, there are several several different uh, doses that are listed. Um, the dose that 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 our uh, you know interim guidelines uh, have issued are 400 milligrams twice daily for a day as a loading dose, and then. 200 milligrams twice daily thereafter for, you know, up to 10 days. Uh, but the initial treatment should be four days. If they get better, four days, great, stop early. Uh, you know, so that means they're, they're getting either five or 10 days, which, as you know, is the 
preferred length of therapy for any antimicrobial course is that it's got to be <laughs> five or in, multiples are five or seven. Uh, I will I will say uh, I should mention this. There is a negative study already. Uh, lopinavir ritonavir, which used to be used for treatment of HIV. Uh, and is still used quite a bit globally, but not in the United States, um, has some in vitro activity against the virus, but but a, a, a clinical trial just published in the New England Journal of Medicine showed that it did not work. All right. So and just to back up for a second, um, you mentioned uh, vaccines earlier and sort of the investigations of them. Where Do you have any sense of where we stand and what the timeline looks like right now for a vaccine for COVID-19? Right. Uh, the public has been given some misinformation about vaccines right from the start. Uh, it is true that with the viral structure that the smart vaccine doctors are able to, and scientists are able to construct vaccine models that potentially could be used in human studies. But it always is going to take at least a year, probably longer, before we have a vaccine that we could use. And it is certainly not going to help us in the current outbreak. Right. All right. Let's let's go on to the last uh, last case here. This is uh, Ima and Major have a sister, Anita Vax. She works in the emergency department at Cashlack as an RN. And two days ago, she saw a patient that actually came in with just nausea and vomiting symptoms and, and some diarrhea. And now she just found out that that patient was eventually discovered to have COVID-19 um, after uh, the patient developed fevers and shortness of breath, some hypoxemia while admitted. So she's pretty nervous because she she doesn't think she was wearing uh, the appropriate PPE while caring for the patient. And um, just she was just wearing the gloves and gown because the patient uh, had potential diarrhea. Would, this, would you consider this to be a high-risk exposure? And uh, how would you counsel her if she was, let's say you're friends with her and she's calling you for your counsel? Well, I'd consider it a high-risk exposure because she's a healthcare worker who shared a room with a patient with active disease. Uh, I will say it's not the highest risk because, remember, coronavirus is sped, spread primarily by people who are coughing. Um, but it's probably also spread by people who are just breathing. And she was in a room with active, someone with active disease. And, and the, the, the coughs and the, and the breaths of these patients are likely to contain the droplets that have coronavirus in them. Um, it's also, as you know, spread by the virus being on surfaces or objects, which is brings up the wonderful word fomite. Uh, and uh, fomites is really a surface that can be contaminated with 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 viruses. And and these these uh, viruses can live on surfaces a variety of different lengths. It's one of the most common questions we get asked is like, you know, how long does it live on a surface? Well, it depends a lot on what the surface is and also what the inoculum of virus is on that surface. You know, there recently was a letter in the New England Journal of Medicine that looked at the how long it lasts on things like copper. I don't know why they chose copper uh, on, <laughs> on uh, plastic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but nobody handles pennies anymore. How long it how long it lasts on cardboard? I mean, I can see that because your Amazon deliveries are going to be very important. But but you know what I found was that it varied. You know, uh, some 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 of the some of the uh, like it was shortest on cardboard. It was gone in like an hour or so, uh, but it was longer on the, on the plastic. You know, it could last a few days, but the, the viral titer went down rapidly on all these surfaces. So so I think the, the major risky surfaces are the surfaces in patient rooms where people have been sick. Uh, those surfaces are the ones most likely to be contaminated. That's why we recommend rooms be cleaned after each patient. Uh, and, and then by no means is she 100% likely to get the infection. You know, it's, it's really fascinating, even within households with people who had very active disease in China, 
sometimes, you know, if there were five people living in the household, only two of them got the infection. So so really, it's not 100% by any means. Well, yeah, and I think the cardboard was at 24 hours, it had significantly decayed. Uh, the uh, Faster than that. It was fast. Okay, it was faster. Yes, but, but these these numbers, you know, it's like you, you yeah, read them. Yeah, they're just them, not... But they're really it just 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 people should know that that these viruses can live on surfaces, right? And uh, it's a good idea to clean surfaces that are involved in healthcare on a regular basis. To wash your hands a lot because your hands get contaminated by touching surfaces, and to avoid touching your face. Okay, so what would you tell? Like there, I, I saw some charts around that described healthcare workers who had unknowingly been exposed to a patient and if they were wearing a mask or if they were wearing a gown and gloves and they gave all these different combinations and how long they were with the person and everything and could they return to work or could they not return to work and what do they do? Is there anywhere we can point people for general guidance about this? Well, that- this is a rapidly evolving area because the healthcare uh, um, workforce is very much threatened by uh, people who get furloughed for no reason. And yeah. so, you know, it's an evolving area and I really don't know what the policies are at each individual institution. Um, there there are some places that probably are still saying that individuals who are exposed to a COVID-19 patient need to be quarantined for 14 days. And there are other institutions who would say that they should be uh, self-monitored and wear a mask while they're at work. Um, you know, it, it, it varies from place to place. Just Just know that this is an evolving area uh, and that obviously, if a person does develop symptoms after exposure, they they really cannot work. So, can I ask about personal protective equipment? I know it's it's sort of a it's a loaded topic right now, but I guess oh boy, what, what is <laughs> so? Let's let's just let's talk about the world of the ideal, and then we can talk about the actual world of the practical. But in an ideal setting, what is the recommended personal protective equipment for someone for interacting with a patient who's has uh, under suspicion for COVID? And then does that differ if they actually have confirmed COVID nineteen? So, so we're saying that the person with COVID-19, that droplet precautions are appropriate, and that would mean a gown, uh, a mask, a face shield, and gloves. Uh, and that's for people who are suspected of having COVID-19 and people with COVID-19. If a healthcare professional is doing any procedure that could aerosolize the virus, we're recommending that that be augmented with an N95 mask uh, and it be switched to air, airborne precautions. So, so these these uh, you can look, uh, not obviously things like intubation, um, bronchoscopies, uh, transesophageal echoes, even obtaining the specimen. I, I think it'd be very reasonable to wear an N95 mask. One important point for people to remember is that the surgical masks are are effective barriers. Uh, we know that that when the study was just published that compared the use of surgical masks with N95 masks in prevention of influenza. And fortunately for resources utilization everywhere, there was no difference. So, so um, you do not need an N95 mask for all aspects of patient care, but you do need it for the aerosolization of procedures. This, this is kind of a, a uh, morbid joke, I guess, but uh, one of the technicians at Cashlack had punched uh, holes in a napkin and put rubber bands around it and was making like a makeshift mask. But this does lead to the practical question in the, is there some sort of like harm reduction? Like if you're, if you're in a low resource setting and you need to just do something like just wrapping a scarf around your face is, do you think that's, that's advisable? Do you think we'll get to that point is if there's like a temporary shortage before we can ramp up production? 
I, I, I think it, something is better than nothing. Uh, th- that, that would be my message. Um, and distance is also very good. You know, one of the most powerful things doctors can do is take a history. And fortunately, we have tools now to take medical histories without actually sharing the same air with the patient. Uh, and I would encourage all healthcare providers who are involved in the care of people with COVID-19 to make use of those tools so that you don't have to share the same air and to avoid getting exposed. Um, so, so, so definitely, you know, if you have a setup where you can do virtual visits, if you have a setup where you can do, uh, you know, FaceTime or equivalents, uh, whatever, um, definitely take advantage of that. It is pa- patients do appreciate it. They actually do appreciate that face-to-face uh, virtual contact more than just a telephone call. Try to utilize that instead of necessarily going in the room. And the other reason why you don't want to go in the room unnecessarily is that each person who goes in the room needs to have PPE. And we're in an unfortunate situation right now where PPE shortages are everywhere in the United States. And, and so we have to make use of them when they're absolutely required uh, to protect the people at most risk. Let's say that let's say that uh, Anita is actually pregnant and she's now pretty pretty nervous about uh, just just having been exposed. What do we know about pregnant women or or women who are lactating or breastfeeding uh, and and the risk of this virus right now? Well, it's an important question because as everyone is aware, pregnancy is a risk factor for severe influenza. However. As far as we can tell right now, and there have been pregnant women who've acquired this, pregnancy does not appear to be a risk factor for severe uh, COVID-19, although I won't say it's it's by any means conclusively shown. So so I think we're going to have to wait and see uh, ultimately what, what the data show. Uh, obviously, pregnancy brings with it all kinds of hemodynamic and pulmonary changes that could conceivably make somebody more vulnerable to severe disease. Encouragingly, there do not appear to be there does not appear to be any congenital syndrome associated with acquiring a coronavirus infection during pregnancy, and there is no maternal to fetal transmission. All right. Well, that's that's some good news in light of all this. I, I think everyone, <laughs> I you know, I think we're going to start to wrap up here. I think everyone is just uh, we'll, we'll yeah. I think everyone right now is just sort of nervous about when will this end. Uh, will we have enough equipment? Um, will I get this? Will my family get this? Uh, it's just it's just an anxiety provoking time. So I think just even though there's a lot of unanswered questions for me at least, it feels like we're doing something. We're and the information's out there. Um, I'm going to be an optimist about this as you are, and hopefully we will we will get through this uh, sooner than later. And this won't go on for you know a really long time. I don't know. Yeah. No, so, so, so Matt, I think that's a, a really good point. And the uncertainties, the severity of the illness, the newness of it, this, the, 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 sometimes the lack of direction are all tremendously upsetting to us healthcare providers. And I think we need to acknowledge that and support each other as best we can. Um, you know, we, we went into this uh, field or infectious disease, or we went into becoming a, becoming a clinician because we wanted to help people. And sometimes it does put us at risk. And these are, these are tricky times. But I, I think if we, Stick to stick to what we're doing, and we support each other. It will improve things enormously versus the alternative, which is to really uh, be, be be critical and and to question everything. It's really trying to use best practices everywhere, wherever we can. 
I think it, perhaps it's more of a comment, but I would welcome Dr. Sachs's uh, perspective on this. I think it's important to note that we're largely talking about patient populations that um, have the freedom to come and go, but there are a lot of populations in the United States, for example, immigrants in ICE detention centers, prisoners, incarcerated folks, um, homeless shelters, folks who use those homeless shelters. There's a lot of people in the United States who do not have the benefit of some of the precautions that we're recommending. And I'm wondering if this is something that we as public health professionals can, what, what can we do to address this? Or what is your perspective on this, Dr. Sachs? It's a really good point. Um, as I would just say that, that such populations, unfortunately, suffer all illnesses more than people who do have the freedom to come and go and have the income to support themselves. And uh, so, so this is a, a sad truth about medical problems. You know, and I, and I will say that, that it has occurred to us uh, very much so that, that, that saying things sound to someone like, you know, once they're discharged, you need to go home and, and isolate at home. What if they don't have a home? I mean, this is, these are just dread, dreadful circumstances for them. So, so uh, I, I, I don't have any solution to it, certainly, but I, I acknowledge the huge problem. Um, I, will, I will probably say as a, as a kind of an apology, we're, we're so, ID as a specialty right now is in crisis response mode, and, and that a lot of that is, is, is spent on the, the people right in front of us in the hospital at the time. I will say, um, to, to try to, to spin this in a positive way, at least from the primary care standpoint at, at Cashlack Northeast Division, um, one of the benefits that we've seen is as we're asking people to sort of quarantine or spend time in home, it's sort of forces us, we can't make that recommendation if they don't have food or running water or electricity. And so we're actually starting to develop contingency plans and directing resources towards people who identify um, food insecurity and, and issues with utilities and that kind of stuff. So it's actually... In some ways, this has helped us identify patients that have been at risk where we may not have been asking those questions, even though you could certainly argue that we should have. Now, we're much more aggressive and it's much more standardized. And I think it's it's afforded some opportunities to help people in a way that we've not been as aggressive in helping them before. So I, I and, you know, no, and no one and who knows me would ever accuse me of being a Pollyanna. But I think in this case, it's <laughs> I think one positive is we've done a better job of actually addressing specific needs for patients that we've not talked about before. I think another positive, which is this is a slightly off topic, is that this has really brought out the benefits of non-traditional patient encounters. You know, we've converted all our ambulatory visits to virtual visits or telephone visits because that's just the right thing to do. And it's not sort of uh, weighted down by the, uh, the, the, the regulations of billing and other things. This is the kind of care we have to deliver. So we're doing it. Yeah, it's, it's, I think, really going to be interesting to see all the social innovation and the way, changing the way we work and care for patients that comes out of this, if there is any, any silver lining that I've seen so far. And then if, if, you, if we have time, Matt, for one more question that actually comes from social media that I liked very much in terms of, and it's a weird time because I feel like overburdened by information and also like I don't know anything. So I'm wondering if you have any recommendations for us as sort of where to kind of stay current without actually getting our heads blown off by just the deluge of information that's coming out of this right now? Well, that's a really good question. I, I want to say I, I have, I think some of the of the science reporters are truly sensational. I want to uh, cite um, Helen Branswell and uh, Jonathan Cohn in particular. I just want to underscore that those two in particular uh, are authoritative and they strike the perfect balance between scientifically accurate and 
not wanting to just inflame things to make a big story. Uh, so I, I just think they're they're tremendous resources. Um, so so those those two, um, I do I do think that the uh, the major high quality newspapers are doing a very good job. Um, and then of course, right now at least, the major medical journals are allowing their much of their COVID nineteen information to be available readily without any uh, paywall behind it. Yeah, I found uh, the CDC site, the ACP has a really great uh, content section, and then uh, New England Journal, a lot of the British journals also have stuff that's free. There's been been a lot of stuff out there. One one other thing that we can all learn from is that the sharing of information has been wonderful, and and the University of Washington, because they were the first to have a really bad outbreak, has a beautiful page with all of their resources that they've made available to everyone. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Paul Sachs, I don't know if if, if uh, you had anything you wanted to end on. If you wanted to speculate where this is going to go, how long it'll last, or well, you know, anything I, else. I, I look to what South Korea did, and I, I remain hopeful. Uh, I think that they they really have a model for how to get this under control. And you know, we are a country that has a lot of resources, and if we can all pull together, we can do the same thing. So that's that's my hopeful closing comment. All right, we'll end it right there. Thank you. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Nope. <laughs> Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. And a special thanks to our many producers for this. Sarah Phoebe Roberts, of course, Chris Chu Manchu, Hannah R. Abrams, Beth Garbs Garbatelli. Uh, not only are those those people helping out with our social media, but also, also writing episodes. So thank you to them. And don't forget to check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I wanted to thank Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music and to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I've been Dr. Rahul Ganatra. I've been Sarah Phoebe Roberts. Uh, You guys are pros. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.